everybody. This is Chuck Marone. We're doing something special on the podcast today. We, we were able to get a group together out of Shreveport, Louisiana, to discuss one of the most bizarre transportation projects you're ever going to hear of. The idea that the federal government would be giving hundreds of millions of dollars to the state to build a, a new highway through a historic black neighborhood displacing and dislocating some of the poorest people in a community and in a struggling neighborhood where, where you have this like bottom up vibrancy in place, people building gardens, putting in homes, helping each other get affordable housing, putting in corner stores, doing all this amazing stuff. It's one of those things where you, you read it and you're like, yeah, this is over the top. This is, this is not happening. There's no way this is taking place in 2021 America yet. Here it is. This project is is going on, and this neighborhood for decades now, but but we can see it kind of more acutely is just being crushed by the weight of this large federal infrastructure investment. Uh, we brought some people from the neighborhood, uh, some people from the community, a council member, and others together to to chat about this project because it is unique, yet it is so representative of a mindset and an approach that desperately needs a change. So what you're going to hear now is an extended Q&A interview with a, a number of people. Uh, we did this as a live webinar. So if you actually want to go watch it, you can watch it on YouTube. Get a sense of what is actually going on in our transportation system and, and why we at Strong Towns just yell at the top of our lungs every time we can that what we need more than anything else is systematic reform. The system does not need more money. It needs more money, but it doesn't need more money until we do this reform because throwing more money into a system that crushes neighborhoods like this is the antithesis of building a nation of Strong Towns. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Rachel Quedno. I'm the program director at Strong Towns. Welcome to this conversation, uh, No New Roads, Fighting an Urban Highway Expansion in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, we have several guests with Connections to Shreveport joining us today. So um, Roosevelt Bryant grew up in the Allendale neighborhood of Shreveport, and he currently works at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And he also hosts the Allendale Strong podcast, which is uh, based in Shreveport. We also have joining us Lavette Fuller, who represents District B in the Shreveport City Council. And she is a founding member of a group called Reform Shreveport. And then we have Kim Mitchell joining us. Kim is an architect, planner, civic leader, and community advocate. And he is the founding director of the Center for Community Renewal in Shreveport. And finally, Tim Wright is joining us. He is a civil engineer at Verdunity, and he is also co-founder and director of Reform Shreveport. And then this conversation is going to be hosted by Chuck Marone, president of Strong Towns. And finally, a really brief plug. Um, we have a new book coming out in a couple of months. Um, this is a book by Chuck Marone called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, Transportation for a Strong Town. Um, I'm guessing if you are participating in this conversation, you probably have some frustrations, to put it mildly, with the transportation system in your city, in America. And this book really lifts the lid on what's going on, why our transportation systems are so messed up, and how we can try to make them better. So I um, encourage you to check that book out in pre-order if you're interested. All right, Chuck, I'm going to hand it over to you and Kim and Roosevelt to kick this off. There's an entire uh, chapter of the book that deals with this project. And it does because I, I found this project to be extraordinary. I was invited by Reform Shreveport to come to Shreveport. I, I don't know how many years ago. It, it seems like four or five at this point. And I was invited to come out to this neighborhood, Allendale. And I kind of been told ahead of time that there's this project going on, but you know, I travel around the country and I see lots of projects and I see lots of neighborhoods and, and I kind of processed this and thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll go out and, and, and listen. 
And as I sat around the table in this place called the Friendship House, I was told about this project, uh, this idea that we were going to spend almost a billion dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars running a highway through this neighborhood that I had just walked through, that everybody at the table with me would be dislocated and, and, and lose their homes and, and lose their places. And to me, it, it seemed, I'm just going to throw out the word, it seemed impossible to me. It seemed implausible. We don't do this kind of thing in, in 2015. We don't do this kind of thing in 2021. This is, this is not something that, that we would do. This is really crazy. In fact, this is what we're doing, and this is the project that's in front of us. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to start, Roosevelt, with you, if I could. Roosevelt, coming at us from, from Georgia Tech today, thank you for taking the time. I would like people to know a little bit about Allendale. This is where you grew up. And I'd, I'd like you to just maybe tell us a little bit about this neighborhood and why, why it's an important place, not just for you, but, but why it's an important place in Shreveport. So, um, yes, I, I grew up in Allendale. My mother grew up there. My grandmother moved there from Belcher, Louisiana, to move my uncle, who is already there, uh, who built this house right after World War II. Um, and that, that neighborhood has always been just at the haven for a lot of the African-Americans in that, in that area, in, in Shreveport. A little history about Allendale. Allendale started off as an immigrant with an immigrant population before and after the Civil War. And from there, after the Civil War, a lot of the African-Americans that were uh, freed from slavery and also coming from Texas, uh, like my, my father's grandfather's side did, they moved from Texas to Shreveport. And Allendale and St. Paul Bottoms was really just the, the place that you could move to. That became where everybody moved to. Um, so from Allendale, they kind of moved from Lakeside to Queensboro and kind of moved on from there through the, through the ages of uh, the street have been around. But Allendale is right there next to downtown. Allendale is kind of this um, uh, gateway into the downtown area. And it, it has always been a gateway through the downtown area ever since Shreveport had become a city. And Allendale is to me, but the president of Allendale Strong, Ms. Dorothy Wiley said, is that a city is only as strong as its weakest neighborhood. And right now, Allendale is one of its weakest neighborhoods. And that's why I believe that Shreveport is not strong because Shreveport does not have that backbone of one of its, I think, weakest neighborhoods to hold it up, right? It is also the gateway into downtown. And when people are driving into downtown, not on the interstates, they come through Allendale, they come through North Market, they come through uh, um, Highland, uh, uh, that area. And Allendale, it, it built up and revitalized and, and helped instead of being left out like we have been for, you know, for decades of not getting infrastructure fixed, streets fixed, sidewalks, things like that. Allendale can be the catalyst for the beginning of the revitalization of the inner city parts of Shreveport. Kim Mitchell with, with uh, Community Renewal, uh, Fuller Center for Housing, saw that, understood that, and they understood that to, to do that, you have to put homeowners there. And that is one of the things that Community Renewal, Kim Mitchell, and Fuller Center for Housing were doing, putting homeowners in the Allendale area because homeowners start the revitalization of the area. And highways do not pay taxes. Homeowners do. You pay property taxes. You pay you know, we, we stay there, we buy things for our homes, we fix up the neighborhood, we, we go to the park. So that's why I believe that Allendale is the catalyst and will be the catalyst for the beginning of Shreveport being back to its glory days of being a city on the grow. Allendale has to be a part of it. If it's not a part of it, then Shreveport will always be lagging behind. Roosevelt, I, I want to ask you this. Having, having grown up there, Obviously, this has been a project decades and decades in the works. In fact, one of the impetuses for wanting to do this is I hear people say, well, we've been planning this for so long, we, we need to do it, right? What has this done to have this project looming over the neighborhood for so long? What has this done to the people of Allendale? What has this done to their, their future, their prospects? I know it's hard to sell a home there because who wants to buy into a neighborhood where this highway is going to come in? What has this done for decades now to, to the people of, of Allendale? Well, it, it, it's killed the morale of the people of Allendale. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's given them a sense of no hope for the neighborhood because a 
just a overwhelming thing that a lot of people say when you go and talk to them and you say, hey, you know, you know, we want to help revitalize Freeport. We want to help preserve Allendale. They say, well, they're going to put a highway through, man. This, you know, they're going to do it. I don't know why you guys fighting it. And that's what we get a lot of times on the Facebook page is why are you guys even fighting it? It's not even worth it. You know, that place is a slum. And it shows you that it, it kills the hope of the of the neighborhood because that's all you hear from other people around the city. Everybody's telling you how bad your neighborhood is. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, no, this is the neighborhood I grew up in. This is the neighborhood, the neighbors I grew up in, the people that I know, uh, the memories that I have is in this neighborhood. And it, it, it you know, it, it just kills your morale at, at, at every turn. That If you look at, I, I like to look at um, Zillow. I like to look at the tax records. I like to look at uh, all, all like the, the, the history of what the housing market was doing in the Allendale area. And you can look at Zillow and look at how Shreveport is made. And in the Levette Fuller's area where she's at, I think it's over in Holland, if I'm not mistaken, Holland and that little area over there, that's really the only place in Shreveport that you can buy a home to over $100,000. Everything else around the area is below $100,000. And you look at Allendale, Allendale, you can't even buy a house. A lot of, of the slumlords, I would like to call them, don't even invest in their home. My grandmother, the guy bought my grandmother's house. He knocks on the door and tells my grandmother, I can fix up your house, but that means I'm going to charge you more in your rent. And she's thinking, okay, well, you know, what's, what's more? And this is around 92. She was paying, I think, around $600 rent on a house that she was me and my cousins and everybody else would chip in and literally fix up because the other person was a slumlord. We would fix it up. We would put down floors. We would fix windows and things like that. He said, well, I got to take it up another $600. And she was like, well, what are you going to fix? Just make it livable, right? If you can at least just make it livable, we're not doing all the fixing, replacing the toilets and placing the plumbing, then that'd be great. Well, Lo and behold, we kept having to do it because we just did not want uh, the, the rent to go up. And that's the, the similar case that goes on through Allendale. Even if they do put any money up, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're charging more for the rent. And a lot of times um, you see a lot of these properties, they're just vacant lots. Uh, they don't want to invest in the neighborhood. The people that stay there, you know, they want it. They cut their grass. They make the house livable. But if you have five or six vacant lots that nobody can buy because everybody's speculating, trying to wait until the, the interstate comes through, then, you know, there's no, there, there's no quality of life in it. So right. that's what's happening to us. Kim, if I could ask you too, I, I, one of the things that I have seen a lot of, and, and Roosevelt referenced the, the Facebook page that is associated with this neighborhood and this project and some of the other conversations that have gone on is that this is a neighborhood not worth caring about. This is a neighborhood that, you know, if it went away, we're, we're going to be better off as a community in Shreveport. I suspect you have a different take on that. And, and I certainly have a different take having been there and spoken to people and experienced it. This is one of the most exciting neighborhoods that I've ever been in, quite frankly. Can, can you talk a little bit about the Friendship House and Basically, what has gone on in this neighborhood that makes it such a special place? Uh, sure, I'll be glad to, Chuck. And and I really appreciate your skill and observation and ability to describe your experience getting to Allendale and seeing Rosie's Garden and encountering the people of what we call the Friendship House area, which is about a 30-block area of Allendale, which is, and Allendale's about uh, 800 to maybe 1,000 acres if you include Ledbetter Heights. In 2002 is when Community Renewal took its uh, model, which is a relational model to, uh, that works across the entire city, but part of that is focused on concentrated disadvantage. And so it came to Allendale, and there's a great story of how uh, the folks were walking the street to make friends and encountered Rosie Chaffel after Rosie had been literally in tears praying for God to send her help as she was fighting against the uh, the drug dealers and all the folks hanging down on the at the corner lot that she ultimately made a garden but uh, at that time 
the police wouldn't even respond to calls in that area of Allendale. It was absolutely the most dangerous place in Shreveport. And so Community Renewal built two friendship houses as is their strategy in these areas, put uh, a, a staff person called a community coordinator to uh, live and serve in friendship and create trust uh, as a first step toward uh, connecting people that live there to be neighbors. And that so that was the first level of changing at this part of Allendale to be to move from what was the most dangerous place in Shreveport to now be among the safest places in Shreveport. And there's a, a group of, uh, or one aspect is called Haven House. It's a volunteer block leader strategy. And our president of Allendale Strong, Dorothy Wiley, uh, was part of this uh, people that came up from Katrina and uh, worked with the Fuller Center and Community Renewal to build and own their own home. So there's about 52 homeowners that are now in that Friendship House area. And it was uh, a night in February 2012 when I was asked to come and meet with a group of these block leaders. And they were what really at a point that uh, Roosevelt described feeling, you could see the hopelessness on their face. They had been part of what I call creating a miracle. They had taken this place from danger to safety. They had created hope because they had a sense of community, not just a home, but a real sense of community that they had created in partnership with Community Renewal and Fuller Center. And now they were facing uh, the power structure of uh, our MPO telling them that they were gonna run over them. You know, my view as an architect and a planner, I'm saying, okay, here's a miracle that really needs to be shared with the country. I'm not aware of any neighborhood renewal process that was done in this way. And it really can be done more and more places uh, to focus on relationships, put people in housing that is truly affordable, privately funded. Uh, and and it, so it, it truly is a miracle. And so here they are after all that work in, uh, in I guess around 2012, feeling like we've done this and now the reward is we're gonna be run over by the power structure of of Shreveport. And that night we met, I, you know, it's a seminal point for me because I, uh, Chuck, you're an expert, more accomplished in a lot of, in many ways than I am, but I went in and I thought, well, I'm here to tell them it's not, a, the roadway's not inevitable, but the process is designed to wear out any resistance. And before I spoke, I listened to the group that night and the depth of their understanding was just uh, very moving. You know, we made an agreement that night that if if the neighborhood would form a learning community to take on this, that we start with our relationships, that's all we got, uh, then I would serve as their planner advocate. That's just a term I made up because the power structure, everything's on the side of the opposition. And literally the only thing Allendale residents started with was their relationships. And so we've grown uh, in a lot of different ways since 2012, but uh, the folks involved are taking on the freeway, but they're full of hope. And their hope is taking them to forming a food cooperative, to uh, renewing the neighborhood park that the city has tried to unpark uh, so that it's not an obstacle to the freeway. And they're really uh, now preparing Chuck for winning and then taking on the leadership role in incremental development uh, coming out of strong towns, but really what is their role in owning and guiding the renewal of the neighborhood? This is what I wanted to ask you as a follow-up, because I, I found this neighborhood to be, and starting with the people, as you suggest, some of the most innovative, exciting, just generous people to be around. If the highway project were to end today, and it, you know, I, I wrote an article for CNN calling on the transportation secretary to say the interstate's done, it's built, we're not going to do this project ever, it's done, it's over. What would happen to this neighborhood? What's the vision for what would come next here? Well, you know, uh, Roosevelt mentioned a, a really a slogan that we're thinking about that can motivate us, which is Shreveport's only as strong as its weakest neighborhood. 
And so if we start with that and then we uh, we learn into it, or we call it a learning doing uh, community, into who's willing in Allendale to grow into the leadership for renewal of this neighborhood. Because this is not really done anywhere that we start with the folks that live there and grow their capacity to lead and participate in the renewal of the neighborhood. So that that's like a frontier for us. And, and I'm, I appreciate you seeing the innovation in the group because it really is amazing. And I don't know when this happened, but the neighborhood group uh, became trusted throughout the city as a source of good information. Uh, and we, we still struggle and it's very discouraging to see the misinformation campaign coming out of the, uh, you know, the flawed assumptions that, that really drive the whole uh, industrial complex of, of building freeways. Right, right. Roosevelt, if I could go back to you just for a second, you have chosen to stay involved here. You're at Georgia Tech now. You're not living uh, in Allendale. You've, in a sense, kind of moved on a, a little bit. You have a very successful professional career in IT. Why are you still involved? Why do you care? Why are you doing this podcast, Allendale Strong? Why? What is it? My mother still stays in the Allendale area. I've stayed in many different Columbus, Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, many different mid-sized cities in the South. And I started reading around. Uh, one of the things that got me into looking at other mid-sized cities in the South was staying in Augusta, Georgia and seeing how they did things there and how Augusta, Georgia did not have the interstate that went through the city. And uh, it kind of went kind of halfway through. But the, the major part of Augusta, you actually had to get on the little bypass to go to. And I kind of saw how they, a lot of the mid-sized cities that I went to um, from Knoxville, Tennessee, um, to Montgomery, Alabama, to Mobile, Alabama, Jackson, Mississippi. Well, Jackson's kind of bigger than Shreveport. But I, I started observing what they were doing. What was Tulsa doing? What was Oklahoma City doing? You know, why, why are they so successful on doing this? And what did they do to overcome that? And I started to see that a lot of the mid-sized cities in the South have some of the same problems. They're trying to rebuild their towns. They have, they, I always say mid-sized cities about 10 to 15 years behind what other major cities is. And major cities in the South are five years behind what other major cities in the world are doing. So it, my interest peaked then. And then with my mother being in Allendale and then me hearing about what they were doing at Spokeco Park, that is what made me want to step out and, and try to help out and get the word out of what they were doing. I grew up around a lot of, I, I go to church with, on one end, Willie Bradford, who was really pushing for it. And on the next end, the same person, Rosie, Rosie goes to the same church as him. We all, gonna, yeah. we all you know, went to Lane Chapel, CME Church in Allendale. So that dynamic of the person that's really pushing it and the person that's trying to save her home, all go to the same church. It, it kind of shows you how close, close we are in that regard to, to Allendale. Yeah. And it shows you that we have two different views of what Allendale can become. Rosie represent hope. And, you know, Willie, I love him. You know, he's a part of a uh, uh, close friend and family, but he kind of represents this old view of just build a highway through the slum and then we'll work it out afterwards. Mm -hmm. So that's what brought me in. That's what just my, my overall view of what was going on and the hope and the dream and the vision that I know that Allendale can live up to. Because Allendale is like I always, you know, Allendale is right there. Um, it has a very rich history, which we're going to go through in our, one of our podcast episodes to talk about the rich immigrant history of Allendale. Um, the, the rich history with, uh, um, you know, uh, the lieutenant, first black lieutenant governor of Louisiana being stayed in the Allendale area, you know, just, uh, um, um, just, just the whole history and, and makeup of the neighborhood is so vibrant. And I believe that it needs to be celebrated. These neighborhoods from Allendale and Shreveport to uh, Laney Walker in Augusta, Georgia, to um, uh, in Macon, I forgot the, the black area in Macon, to Africatown and Mobile, 
these places need to be celebrated. These places need to be looked upon as with their history and, and, and what they brought. And But we need to understand how they got to that point with redlining, how they got to that point with the FHA uh, um, not insuring loans, how they got to that point with the Montgomery GI Bill only being given to soldiers or, or people that fought in the war to stay in these areas where they could not get loans that they, unless they were over 35, 45% interest rates. So I, I, that's why I came back. That's why I did this. Every time I go home, I see it. Every time I sit on Passman Street right there by Spoke Hill Park and I look and I can see the downtown area and I can see where we used to stand there and watch the 4th of July fireworks and where we used to uh, celebrate for Juneteenth. That is the memory I have. That's the memory I want other kids to have that go to Booker T. Washington, Ingersoll, Lakeside. You know, I want them to have that same feeling of what Allendale gave me. So that's why I do what I do. Thank you. I, I want everybody to hear that. And I, I'm inspired by you, Roosevelt. I listen to your podcast. I hope you know it's <laughs> I'm with you. So, Kim, let me ask you one last question real quick before we switch over and, and, and bring in Tim and, and Lavette. I know there's a statewide coalition being put together here. Can you can you talk about the significance? I, I feel like a, a big part of what has made Allendale such a, a special place is this internal bond. But that internal bond now is giving you kind of a strength to reach out and, and create some of these external links too. Can can you talk a little bit about this broader coalition and, and what we're trying to accomplish with that? Well, we, uh, in our in our study and learning, uh, we began to see that other cities are experiencing the same thing that, uh, that Allendale is and that there are small groups and uh, not just in Louisiana, but across the South and the country that are essentially fighting the same battle. And, uh, and so, We've been wanting to, to reach out, and then one of our uh, advisor members, John Perkins, connected with Amy Stelly in New Orleans. And uh, Amy liked the idea, and she reached out to Lafayette, and then uh, Allendale Strong convened this statewide uh, group that includes Monroe, New Orleans, uh, Lafayette, and Shreveport. So we call it the Four Corners. And, uh, you know, it's continuing our learning. And we're, we're hopeful, and that group is really about policy change. We've learned that uh, that the, even with, uh, with Secretary Buttigieg announcing uh, a philosophical change, that the structure of the system is, is not really going to change without uh, intervention at the state level. We've kind of learned that through now being part of the freeway fighters with the Congress of New Urbanism. And so our group is really digging in. How can we do this? We're, so we've had three meetings, and so we're, uh, we're still trying to, to uh, reach out and network uh, to our networks to see how can we build some movement toward taking steps that lead to policy change and practices change in Louisiana, uh, including we've hired, or Allendale Strong has hired Norm Marshall, who's... Yeah, uh, Norm, yeah. I knew that you did. He's written for Strong Towns, but Norm is, uh, he's done some podcasts uh, with us on Roosevelt's podcast. And then he's helped us request transportation uh, demand files and is ready to bring his, uh, what, what he's been teaching us about to expose the flaws in the whole calculation system. We're, we kind of take an attitude, our, our leaders are just uh, being taken advantage of. They're operating with faulty information. Uh, you've done a great job of helping us dispel some of that too with the uh, the articles that took apart their justification report. And uh, so it, it's a, a journey and it's extremely frustrating to, to try to figure out where to push the system to get some different outcomes. And all the time yeah. they keep uh, throwing money, which as they throw money, uh, our leadership could eventually end up finding a way to fund this ridiculous project. So right. I want to bring in Tim here. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Roosevelt. One of the, uh, the things that has really blown my mind about this project is the, uh, the funding part of it. $700 million, approaching a billion dollars was the last number I saw, but I, I, I think it's a higher number now. You are a civil engineer. 
you do all kinds of municipal projects, uh, you know, in Texas and Louisiana. What is $700 million? I mean, how, how can we wrap our minds around this? Uh, you know, you're, you're doing road projects that are significant projects that are half a million, three quarters of a million. Uh, this is an astounding, astounding number, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you think about, you know, you could probably do half of the city with that amount of money. Um, right. Yeah. It's a lot of money. And, you know, just to, you know, a lot of these, these big highway expansions, it's just the, you know, the massive amounts of money it takes to, to construct these is it, you know, it's expensive in the short term and on the back end, you know, in the long term, it's going to be very expensive as well. You know, I was spending some time um, combing through some Louisiana state budget documents from our Department of Transportation over the last couple of days. And, you know, you just kind of see, you see the impacts that um, this mindset of always wanting to expand kind of gets you financially. There's just a, a lot of, a lot of debt that the state is, is, um, is having to take on through a lot of projects like this. Um, I was looking at one program that happened over the span of it started about 1990 and um, you know, lasted about 20 years as a $5 billion project. And, you know, I've driven on a lot of these roads and they're nice. And, you know, there's a beautiful bridge near Baton Rouge over the Mississippi river that I was just like, wow, this is incredible. But then you, you know, you go and look at the financing and the, you know, the gas tax that was used to pay for that program is not caught up. And now they're having to, you know, they're having to dig into, um, the other gas tax revenue to help make up that gap. And so personally, when I think when you look at the funding, um, it's, you know, it just kind of paints a picture of what some of these mega projects do and you have to be really smart. Um, I think there's certainly a need for big infrastructure projects at certain points in time and places, but, you know, you really have to weigh the positives and negatives. Um, I think Roosevelt and Kim did a great job of talking about the social and neighborhood level implications, but, um, you know, we live in a state that people are very hesitant to raise um, the gasoline tax. And it came up a couple of years ago just because they see these deteriorating roads all over the state. And, you know, meanwhile, we're kind of trying to build the next big thing in, instead of focusing on maintaining what we've got. And I think it's just kind of a, a downward spiral. And so, you know, that's kind of what I think of when I look at some of the big, you know, the big cost numbers for a project like this. What about the people who say most of this money is coming from the federal government. If, if we don't do this project, that money's just going to go somewhere else and we're going to lose it. So we, we might as well do this project. What's kind of your response to that line of thinking? Well, I mean, it's true. <laughs> like the budget documents that I was looking at, like Louisiana, because, you know, because our, our funding situation is not that great. We, we literally are losing you know, losing money to other states because we can't put up the local match. And I mean, I would just say, let's, you know, let's try and turn that around, but let's do it on some, you know, some roads that are already in existence to kind of, to kind of keep those up. I mean, that's true. You know, if you don't have the match, then the money does go to other states. But I mean, I think, I think there are, are smarter ways to, to spend that money. When I got the economic analyses, the, the the documents that I've written kind of extensively about it and and included in the book that I've got coming up here, a couple of things that blew me away was that uh, the, the economic people, and this is not the engineering people, but I, I think the numbers cross-correlate, were literally projecting 250 or 60 or something like that through trips a day. They were also looking at commuters and they were projecting somewhere around 3,600 commuting trips a day. Again, we throw numbers around 700 million, this many trips, that many things. And I, I think people who are non-numerical people, their eyes glaze over. But I mean, I, I know of alleys in cities that get more than 250 cars a day. I mean, this is an, a bizarre small number of trips for a bizarre large sum of money. Is, is, that, is that how you're seeing this as well? Yeah, I mean, with any project, you know, you do have to look at those numbers and figure out <laughs> if it's worth it. I mean, some of our busiest roads in Treeport, if anyone on the, on the call is, is familiar, Uri Drive and 70th Street, I mean, those, some of those state highways in certain parts of our city get 
you know, probably 30 or 40,000 trips a day. And that's what, you know, fast food restaurants and all that look to, to kind of decide where to place some of their buildings. And so, I mean, if you're talking about 3,600 trips, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not a lot of cars. So, I mean, again, you really have to, you know, you really have to dig deep and you have to, you have to think about, okay, like what's, you know, what's the reasoning and really dig deep and ask the right questions to whatever road project it is. You know, there's, there's a lot of arguments that say, you know, well, you need a North South and you need an East West, you know, thoroughfare. It's like, okay, like that's a great, that's a great kind of philosophical, you know, thought that you have, but you really have to dig in to the numbers and make sure that it's a good financial investment. And if it's not, then you're just, you're just digging yourself further into a hole. One of the things I've always appreciated about you and of course appreciate about Verdunity, the, the firm that you work in, is this willingness to kind of step outside of the, the traditional engineering mindset. I feel like our, our colleagues in the engineering profession would say, we need to do this project because it was put on a map in the 1950s. It's part of the interstate system. We have to complete this system. There's almost like a, 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 a subroutine that is running that has to work its way through. How do you feel about the, the kind of calls to basically end the interstate system or say, you know, it's built, let's, let's move on. And these few remaining segments maybe weren't that important in the first place. I mean, I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, I think there certainly could be, you know, there could be new cities that pop up that maybe you need to build, you know, a a section of freeway. I mean, Shreveport is another great example. I mean, there's an interstate that was built, you know, north of us. Um, It's Interstate 49. It's just the part through the rural areas. And I mean, I think something like that can be, I, I haven't run the numbers on it, but I mean, I use that to visit friends and hot springs and all that, but I think in general, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty much, we've reached our capacity and we need to figure out, you know, we need to figure out new ways to, to, to build our cities because I mean, it's pretty easy to get, (laughs) it's pretty easy to get places, but I think, you know, I know you've used the words kind of like thicken up our communities. I think that's, it's a very challenging way to move forward. It's much more challenging, I think, than just slapping a four lane highway somewhere, but I think it's, I think it's the right thing to do. And just to really, really get into those complex details. Let me ask Lavette to join us. Lavette, first of all, for those of you that are keeping score, Lavette wrote the afterword of my book. So if you, the first book, Strong Town. So if you've read that, you've read Lavette's writing. I'm so grateful. And uh, she's on our advisory board. She's one of our, uh, she's one of my bosses. So uh, <laughs> it's so nice for you to be here with us, Lavette. I want people to, Uh, get an understanding of what it's like to be on a a city council in a city like Shreveport. Because I I think there's this mindset that a a lot of us have that if you're on the city council, you have the authority to kind of step up and stop a project like this. And and, and you can just do a vote and it's all over. And, And why is this continuing on? Can you talk just a little bit about maybe the frustration of being in elected office and not being able to sometimes stop this federal process and this state process and, and all these other forces working for you? Well, sure thing. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Um, absolutely. The first thing with this is that it's a matter of the state matching funds and the federal funds. So that's, that's going to be our state legislator legislature uh, and our local delegation fighting for those funds. And for the most part, they do. So we don't really, we don't have necessarily any say or influence over that, not like not legitimate influence over how they handle that process. We can be vocal, but there's you know a price to pay when you're, when you're vocal about it, just having the wrong opinion in the eyes of people who have a major sphere of influence and a lot of funding. It, it's a very hot button third rail place to be. Um, the mayor does have some say. He's uh, on the the MOU for the region. Well, the, the MPO. Okay, more coffee, please. The MPO for the so that's um, several parishes that basically gets that that get to vote over how funding and studies and planning are set out for major transportation. Um, and I've watched our current mayor sort of 
sidestep conversation as a federal and state issue that without regard to, to the fact that he's a voting member of NLCOG, which is going to determine how funds are, how funds are spent for a lot of these big projects. It's squirmy. It, it's kind of hard to, to want to be able to influence things and want to be able to speak to people and get them to, to consider a different, a, a different way of viewing this project from, the, from my seat as a city council person who doesn't actually get to leverage a vote on this, the most we would do would be a ceremonial vote as a resolution saying we are in agreement that we want this to happen sooner than later and we can take a vote on it. And that's just kind of a, you know, let's see whose team you're on kind of a, a vote. Right. Um, but beyond that, just in the big picture for me personally, there was a recall against me a year ago for, for standing up to another boondoggle project. It didn't go very far, but people were so frustrated that I wasn't taking a mainstream view about a project that was going to speed up decay and decline rather than, and, and be a very expensive boondoggle rather than um, being for that. I want to see us actually revitalize existing neighborhoods. And so a recall, a recall effort started against me. And so I guess if I had any sense, I'd just stop talking, you know, um, but I don't have any sense. I don't, right. I don't tell everyone that on a regular that's basis. Why we, that's why we love you. <laughs> It, we're going to get to questions in, in a in a minute. So I've seen people start to ask as add questions to the Q and A. I encourage you to do that, Levette. I, I really want to get to this idea of uh, trying to to do your job and represent people and be a conscientious local city council member in a, in a situation where this this really catastrophic amount of money is kind of dividing the community. Uh, you had this committee of one hundred. Uh, which I, I'm guessing the state legislative delegation listens to more than, uh, you know, a, a friendly council member representing real people in a real district. How does this kind of make governing or make doing your job, the, the fact that there's this huge project and this huge amount of money, how's it separating people? How's it making it difficult to do even, even normal things that I think could bring people together on? The day-to-day -to -day isn't too bad. It's not often you can have a conversation with someone who is whose mind is malleable about this particular situation. I once sat down with several members of the local Chamber of Commerce board, and one of those people, if you follow Allendale Strong, you'll see the memes about Sound Panel Patrick. And something about I-49 came up, which was inevitable. And it's just like me on the hot seat over coffee with this group having a casual conversation. And I said, okay, I'm not gonna have an argument with you about doing this or not doing this. Let's talk about how, what does it actually look like? If you can be told, here are all of the issues that we need to mitigate, be it the displacement, the loss of historic churches, the environmental impacts, the noise, the pollution, the litter, everything that goes along with an elevated highway, just using so much space, um, not just the length to connect it, but the width, the on-ramps and off-ramps, all of these things. If you take into account everything that you need to mitigate to do this quote unquote right, how much more is it really gonna be? If you play Sims, when like your Sims character runs out of fuel and just kind of melts down and goes crazy, it was like that. It's just, I could not fathom that there was anything to do other than have a, like a tug of war argument over actually having like a real visceral conversation over the dollars and cents and the impact. That's what it's like. It's emotional. It's an emotional conversation. It's not rational. And what's interesting there is I am a self-proclaimed progressive. I don't do well with the word liberal. I'm a very bad Democrat, but I, I, I consider myself a progressive. In a room with a lot of conservative Republican or conservative business-minded Republicans who say that they are fiscally conservative and admire that I'm somewhat of a fiscal hawk and probably the most fiscally conservative person on our council, 
So they hear me on right wing radio and they're like, yeah, we like this part of her. We know she's liberal, but this is cool. So when you get into a conversation with people who identify as fiscally conservative and they can't understand the problem that I have with the numbers um, and they just kind of melt down, it's frustrating. But the next step is field of dreams magical thinking that building this highway is going to create all of these other opportunities that we're going to see so much more economic development all of this industry is going to want to come here and they still don't play out that narrative okay so what kind of industry do you believe highways are going to bring what kind of jobs are these distribution jobs okay so rather than have a vibrant neighborhood like the urban skeleton is already there there are parts of Allendale where you can walk around and feel like you could be in Brooklyn or any other cool urban area where a kid can get out, get off the school bus, stop and see the little dude at the corner store, get an ice cream cone, go play baseball or basketball in the park, and then go home all in the stretch of a couple of blocks and have this kind of sense of community and eyes on the street. It's already there. All you have to do is build it up. And then you get the tax revenue and the vibrancy from that. But you would rather replace all of that right next to your downtown with a highway and huge warehouses and all of the other like major impacts that are negative. It's a hard vision for me. And I don't think that when they say when people are saying we believe that we're going to get these other attributes that they, they, they don't see that those aren't attributes. And the other part of that is, this is drive over country, not live in country. This isn't bringing people to, it's bringing people over, not even through. It's an elevated piece of highway, three miles of it. This is bringing people past it. This is to get people from South Shreveport, very affluent area. This is to take them on their girls trips to Fayetteville and Bentonville, Arkansas. This is to bypass for other areas that guess what? Connect by I-49, but I-49 doesn't go anywhere near the major parts of their city. The parts of the, the areas that they're going to leave Shreveport for for vacation for a weekend, and I say that because I just did it. We took I-49 and we have to drive through Texarkana. You see no part of Texarkana. And Texarkana is growing. And we drive north and you're off of it, you're on 71 for a while, then you get back on it at Fayetteville, and no part of what makes Fayetteville special can you see from the highway. And then you do Bentonville and it's exactly the same way. But we're going to take an area with the same kind of capacity for charm and vibrancy and put a highway through it and replace everything around it with factories, possibly. It's just a bad vision for me. It's, it's difficult that that visual that I gave you can't even be achieved in a dialogue because it's such a hot button and the people who want what they want in their defense are so accustomed to Shreveport not finishing things that it feels like Lucy in the football. And they're so desperate to see something just get done because they think that it will at least let their personal morale increase that that's why they're so, if they're not, profiting for it, their reason for, for championing it is that we want to kick that football and finally win against Lucy because we're tired of not finishing anything. I want to ask one last question. I saw Rachel pop up here. I know we're going to get to Q&A. This has just been so good. I want to ask you and Tim both one last question together. And I, I don't care which one of you wants to go here, but I, when you're talking about finishing and, and, and Lucy and, and the football, Reform Shreveport is a different vision of this. And, and in some ways, it's a little bit dissatisfying because it's an acknowledgement that we are going to continually work on this thing, as opposed to have like one just big thing that fixes it all. How much momentum have you seen with Reform Shreveport since this was founded? And, and talk a little bit about it. Yeah, we've, we've done a lot of projects. I mean, I think in, in short, it's just the acknowledgement that we need to, you know, we need to go step by step and find some solutions and, you know, build upon that. One of my, you know, just the most personal kind of connection to, you know, to these kind of efforts to rebuild communities. I just, I feel so grateful, you know, when I've 
you know, met some people in Allendale or we've been doing another um, project recently that's um, south of there. And, you know, I think, I think these communities, like all communities really have, have just such a, a, a great kind of interconnect of all the, you know, there's all these churches and residents that, that really care. Um, but I think there's, you know, if you, certain people look at the neighborhood and it, they just see no hope. And I really think that, you know, it's founded, you know, what we're, we've been doing is founded upon like, okay, there's, you know, there are concrete ways that we can, you know, we can build up communities. And I mean, the hard part is, is a lot of times there isn't a plan. And sometimes it drives me crazy as, as an engineer. And I know Lavette uh, sees that sometimes, but it's like, you know, there is something really freeing about just finding that next best step and working from there. And, and, you know, for me, that's really at the core of, of what we're doing and it's hard, but you really do have to dig deep and, and see a vision and, um, and just go from there, go step by step. I'm going to invite Roosevelt and Kim to come back on. Lavette, you want to take that just for a sec? And then I'll we'll just, yeah, switch to I'll, Rachel. I'll try not to be long-winded this time. We have people, I, I hear in MPC meetings when they're discussing like an annexation, I will hear the things that we've been saying for the last several years with Reform Shreveport. I'm hearing it told back to me like they had no idea that we were the ones that we were engaging at first. That part feels pretty good. Like it's catching on. They're, yeah. they're starting, we're starting to hear it in rooms of influence. And that gives me um, like on the concept side more than the project project side, which is still really good. But on the concept side, it's given me a little bit of hope occasionally. It, we're at least getting a little traction. All right, Rachel. Awesome. Thank you all so much for, for sharing. So we have a question here from Matthew Holland who asks, um, a couple folks mentioned the issue of federal funding for these new projects um, that are focusing on new projects rather than improving existing roads. I feel like maybe this question can go for Tim, Lavette, anybody really. Do you foresee a shift in policy at the federal level that's going to prioritize improving urban infrastructure over expanding interstate stuff and highways? I would say there's definitely grassroots efforts to go that direction. And I know that the the current administration has definitely been emphasizing that there's just a whole lot of inertia, the opposite direction though. And I think, I think that's going to be tough to, to overcome, but I mean, I think it just requires more education and I think we can, I think we can get there, but still a lot of work to do. You know, on the federal level, as soon as an administrator leaves, you know, another administration come in and they change everything. And you can look at Anthony Fox, you know, to uh, when Trump took over and now with, with, with people to judge. It's like, it's back and forth. It's like, you know, so I think unless, and, and, and Tim was correct, unless we have a grassroots effort that goes on both sides of the aisle, then that's when you're going to start seeing a change. Once you take, you know, two steps forward on a federal level, as soon as a new administration comes in, you take three steps back, right? And now you have to learn to take four steps to progress. So, that's kind of the way you see it. And unless you have a consistent um, policy that stays there for, I think, for at least three or four uh, presidential uh, cycles, then that's, I think, you're gonna, it's going to take hold. But as long as we keep having going back and forth, back and forth, then it's going to be the same, I believe. Yeah, Rachel, uh, recently heard Beth Osborne of Transportation for America, who's from New Orleans, by the way. And she's been in the transportation bureaucracy for a long time and was describing the problem of change at the federal level, that, uh, that it's, it's very difficult. Uh, entrenched bureaucrats just kind of wait out whoever brings the latest uh, new direction, and then they just keep going. And she framed that the big challenge is at the state level, that uh, the feds can set some policy direction, but... Uh, the entrenched thinking at state DOT levels is where the real challenge is. And, uh, you know, we saw this recently, uh, and I think of it this way, Louisiana has about $1.1 billion every year to spend from state DOT, from the uh, state and federal gas tax. And nobody's asking the question, how do we have a system that we can operate within that that amount of money. We've obviously built too much because we have a $30 billion 
backlog, about uh, 15 billion of maintenance and 15 billion of new mega projects. And so to with the mind, current mindset, the state starts stealing money from other state coffers. Uh, I-49 is stolen. Uh, I'm going to use that term. They wouldn't accept that. But from the unclaimed property uh, fund uh, to the tune of about $15 million a year, they obligate uh, the state debt to pay back if anybody claims that unclaimed property from the BP settlement fund. You know, they took $100 million of $700 million that they, they don't have. That's flowing over about a 25-year period, I think. Uh, and they put that toward I-49 inner city. And then this last legislative session, the Chambers of Commerce and, and the Committee of 100 types across the state uh, got through legislation that will move sales tax revenue on automobiles from the general fund, where it can go to healthcare and education and other things, to transportation. And they went so far as to say that generates about 300 million a year. And so 75% of that 300 million is going to new highway mega projects, only 25% to, to renovation or to uh, maintenance. So, you know, that that's why I think our coalition could be important if we can figure that out at the state level. And, uh, you know, we've got to do something to change the mindsets of our leaders and uh, and then all of the practices and policies that are just based on flawed assumptions. Levette, and then I'm going to get some context stuff for all of you, but go ahead, Levette. If you can't change the mindset and throw the elephant, it's time for some new leadership. It's time for a younger leadership that's not so obsessed with cars and petroleum. Um, start electing people that ride bicycles. <laughs> I need to get on my bicycle. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Uh, I love you, Levette. Um, I, I want people to be able to follow all of you. As, as we've been going along here, the people who are live on the webcast have gotten a stream from, from Rachel, who's awesome, of all these links. And we're going to put those in the show notes when we release this as, in the podcast and everything else. But for people who are listening, Roosevelt, what's the name of your podcast and where can people get a, get a hold of that? Our name of our podcast is the Allardale Strong Podcast. You can uh, check us out on YouTube or anywhere that you check out podcasts. We actually, uh, I'm going to have a upload. I had a little technical problem getting the podcast out on Buzzsprout, but I'm uh, we're going to have a big push probably this weekend of all of the other podcasts that we've done. So to fill up that list. And uh, like I said, you can check us up on YouTube. Uh, you can check us on anywhere that you get podcasts. And you can also go to the Facebook page, Allendale Strong Facebook page. And sometimes we will post up little shorts and things like that on that Facebook page. Awesome. Kim, if people want to learn more about your work, Friendship House, all these things, what's the best place to do that? Uh, at communityrenewal.us. Uh, and that'll take you to our website. And you can learn about that model that, uh, that we are replicating around the country and even in Africa. Yeah, fantastic. I did want to say we have a new website for Allendale Strong. Too. Oh, please. And our our uh, PR person, Danielle Richard, is is watching us today. But uh, it's allendalestrong.org. And you can keep up with uh, our activities that way. Fantastic. Tim, Verdunity, everyone knows where to get a hold of you there who's listening. How about Reform Shreveport? Is there anything we can plug people into with, with either of those two? Our website is reformtreeport.com and you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Fantastic. And Levette, if people want to follow you, because I, I know they do, what's the best place to do that? Probably Instagram, Levette, F-L-E-V-E-T-T-E-F. Um, Levette Fuller, on, at Twitter, I'm at Levette Fuller. Um, and the website that I've rarely ever updated is levettefuller.com. Fantastic. Rachel? So thanks for joining us. Um, and I will also do one last mention of the book. As Kim was reminding me, there's a there's a whole section on this I-49 issue in the um, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer book as well, if you want to read further. So thanks. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, Kim, Levette, Tim, Roosevelt, thank you so much for uh, being here and, and sharing your wisdom as part of this conversation. Yeah, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. All right. Take care.
Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.